0: So here we are, we're in John 3.14. Now I know we already read these verses today, but if you recall, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And he is preparing Nicodemus to understand what is probably the most uh, powerful and popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16. All right. So this is how Jesus chooses to do it. So it'll be good for us. It'll help open up our understanding of John 3.16 because it's preparing Nicodemus to understand. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, Starting in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, um, 1,400 years before Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, you were already painting the picture of your love for us. And Lord, uh, let, that, let that sovereignty and let that love and that knowledge and your authorship of our story, let that ring true this morning. Let that be a theme of our day. And as our, as our children's ministry downstairs learns about Nebuchadnezzar and your sovereignty over the most powerful king in the world at that time, Lord, let, let your sovereignty and your knowledge and your ultimately... Your love for us. Let that ring through this morning and let it encourage our hearts today. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when my family first discovered that we were moving to Colorado, we were living in Georgia at the time, but we wanted to get into a relatively inexpensive Colorado hobby. We wanted to learn how to hike. So Evelyn, my oldest daughter, was a little younger than two at the time. And so what we did in order to practice for this hiking was we bought one of those backpacks that you can stick a toddler in and the adult can walk while the the baby's along for the ride. And so the the kid gets to enjoy all of the benefits of the hike, but they get to access places, and especially here in Colorado, my kids get to go to places that they would not have been able to do on their own. All of the work of the hike is being done for them, and and people recognize this uh, whenever we come across... Uh, whenever we come across other hikers while we're walking on the trail, you know, some of the adults will always see the toddler in my backpack and they'll say, oh, that's the best way to hike. Oh, I wish I had somebody to carry me on their back. So my kids don't get it, but the adults here are understanding that my kids are getting the enjoyment and the benefits of the hike while all of the work of the hike is being done for them. And so we see here in the text, in John 3, 14 and 15, that Jesus is illustrating, he's explaining to Nicodemus a similar concept. And that is that all of the work required for our salvation is done by someone else. It's done by Jesus. And so, um, so as, as Jesus is, is talking to Nicodemus here, and we're going to get into the text, what we need to understand and, and walk away with today is that all that is required, since all the work has been done, all that is required for us to benefit from this work is to believe in that person who did that work on our behalf, namely Jesus Christ. So for us to understand uh, why this serpent in the wilderness makes any sense at all, we need to understand the, con- the context of what Jesus is saying here. And, and understanding the context, looking at John chapter 3 in a little more detail Um, Before we dig into these two verses, looking at John chapter 3 is going to help us in a couple of ways. First, it's going to help us to understand the wonderful value in these two verses. Now, a serpent in the wilderness does not make a lot of sense to me, a 21st century American. But to Nicodemus, this is what Jesus was using to prepare his heart and his mind to receive John 3.16. So it's going to help us in our understanding as well as we dig into these verses um, and and um, as we understand the context of this, of who Jesus is talking to, we're going to understand why these two verses are so important. Secondly, understanding the context here is going to help us outline our thoughts as we approach these two verses. It's going to help us organize the way that we see these two verses and the big three things that we can take away from John 3, 14 and 15. So now as we look at the context here in John chapter 3, the first thing that we must know about this chapter is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. All right, what is a Pharisee? The Pharisees were a section of the Jewish religion. They were a, a, a Jewish sect in which they were immersed in Scripture, that, which was the Old Testament at the time. They knew the Bible. They taught the law. and they, And Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would have known the law of Moses very thoroughly. And he would have followed the law of Moses very thoroughly. The, the Pharisees were known, were known as a very strict Jewish sect as far as following the law. They would follow the law to the letter. In fact, the Apostle Paul later says that he, as he was a Pharisee, he called it the strictest sect of our religion. He said it was the strictest sect of Judaism. And now we would consider it legalistic. And what that means is that while the Pharisees were exacting in the way that they followed the law to the letter, the unfortunate thing is that they did not follow the law out of a love for God, but they felt that through their own works and through these following the law so, um, so exactly and so perfectly, they thought that they could achieve salvation. It wasn't a love for God. They thought that through their works, they could achieve their salvation. Now, in addition to this, so this is Nicodemus, this, these are the people that he spends time with. And in addition to this, with so much knowledge about Scripture, Nicodemus was also a teacher. All right, So he, he knows the Word, he knows the law, he knows the Old Testament thoroughly, and he follows it. And he's also a teacher of this law. He was a respected teacher. And in fact, Jesus, earlier in this passage, he calls, he refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was a preeminent teacher among the people of Israel. But, though he knew the law so well, he had been immersed in the scripture, and though he taught the law so well, and though he followed the law so well, Nicodemus recognized that Jesus had a power and an authority to teach which far surpassed his own ability to teach. So Nicodemus decided to ask Jesus about it, So he comes by night, and that's where we pick up in John chapter 3. Nicodemus visits Jesus by night. He gets an uninterrupted, private conversation with Jesus. He gets to ask some questions about how Jesus can do these things. And so this is what's going to help us understand, verses 14 and 15. Jesus responds to Nicodemus by explaining spiritual concepts through analogies. What is an analogy? An analogy is a logical comparison between two things. So Jesus, in John chapter 3, he's making analogies here where he is taking physical, concrete examples, and he is logically comparing them to a spiritual reality. So Jesus starts, he tells, he starts off the conversation by telling Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using this analogy here, something that Nicodemus would be familiar with, this physical birth. He is logically comparing it to the way that we enter into spiritual life. We must be born from above or born of the Spirit. All right, so Nicodemus doesn't quite understand that at first. So Jesus continues. He uses a different analogy. He explains that this is all a work of the Holy Spirit, and he compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. All right, so he's making another analogy here. He says, just like the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you can sense the effects of the wind, You can sense the effects of the Holy Spirit, but we cannot predict it or control it or manipulate it. So Jesus is making this second analogy. He's now given two analogies to Nicodemus where he is explaining that the work of salvation, the way that we can understand and see and enter the kingdom of God, cannot be done by us. Just like how I had nothing to do with the work in my own physical birth. My mom did that that's her heart. And just like I cannot fly a kite without the wind doing all of the work for me, and just like my daughters can't get to some of these locations on these Colorado Springs trails without me carrying them on my back, we cannot do the work that is required to save ourselves. And so this is this analogy here This is what's going to help us outline our thoughts as we approach John 3, 14, and 15. And we see three big things in these two verses that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. And these three things, first, Jesus gives Nicodemus a relatable analogy, a relatable analogy. So this is where he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So Jesus is is bringing in this serpent in the wilderness, which is something that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with, and we're going to get a little more familiar with it this morning. And Jesus is using this as an analogy to illustrate the second thing. This is the second thing that Jesus teaches Nicodemus, and that is the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality. This is where Jesus says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's making a logical comparison between a physical thing that Nicodemus is familiar with and the spiritual reality. And then finally, so we have the relatable analogy, we have the spiritual reality. The third thing, let me know if I got carried away here, we have eternal vitality. Mm -hmm. All right, eternal vitality. So there's a reason I use vitality instead of life. We'll get into that in a little bit uh, more detail. This is where Jesus says in verse 15, he says, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So let's start we're going to look at that relatable analogy, that Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And Nicodemus, like I said, as a Pharisee, he studied the law so well, he would have been very familiar with this. So we're going to get familiar with it too. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 21. If you're not super familiar, Numbers is the, the fourth book in the Bible. So it's going to be back toward the beginning. It's a book, it has a lot of history about how the Israelites did their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So Numbers chapter 21, I'm going to pick up in verse 5, All right, Numbers 21.5, the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, When he looks at it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. All right, so here in Numbers 21, we kind of have a a microcosm of the gospel just in five verses. We have a story of rebellion, judgment, repentance, and grace. It's a foreshadow of the gospel, now before we dig into this a little bit deeper, just as an interesting side note here, this event with the snakes in the wilderness occurred near the end of the Israelites' famous 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. All right? They were on their way into the Promised Land. In fact, in the first four verses of this chapter, they had just scored a victory over a Canaanite king um, by the power of God, and yet they went immediately to complaining. And so as we'll we'll learn next week, another shameless plug, Pastor Jeremy is going to talk about Jude 5, where Jude talks about how God subsequently destroyed the unbelieving Israelites. And this is one of the ways God had promised that older generation that they would not be allowed to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. And this curse with the serpents is one of the ways in which God carried out that judgment. And so it's just kind of, kind of an interesting thing about how the Bible connects in various different ways that this judgment with the snakes was one of the ways that the Lord enacted that curse. So first of all, as we look into this text, Numbers 21, 5 through 9, the people faced judgment for their sin. So they had, they had just scored a big victory over Canaanite king and yet they said there's no food no water we need to go back to egypt we loathe this miserable food and what is the miserable food that they say they are loathing it's manna that's right so the lord had provided food for them in the desert out of nothing he had created this manna and they are starting to loathe it they are no longer grateful for the food they are no longer patient they are impatient with the lord and they speak against him and against moses and against aaron So as they're complaining about the Lord's provision, he sends judgment for that sin. He sends these snakes, uh, these fiery serpents is what it is called. So the text is not abundantly clear whether these serpents are fiery because of their color, like they have a flaming orange color, or because of the pain of their bite. But in any case, what we can see from the text is that it is so bad that the people of Israel repent of their sin. They recognize that this curse is here because of their sin, and so they repent of their sin, and they go to Moses and they ask him to intercede. And so Moses intercedes, and now here's the next thing we see from this this uh, portion of the text. It's that the Lord provides a solution. He provides a, a merciful and gracious solution, and if you're asking me, in my, my own sinful heart, he provides a weird solution. right? So he tells Moses, and if I'm an Israelite, I'm an Israelite here suffering from these snakes, I'm asking, so you mean to tell me that I don't need to cut an X and suck the poison out? I don't need to go find a doctor. I don't need to go find an antidote or an antivenom or anything like that. Instead, Moses made this snake, this thing that we are suffering from, out of bronze, and he set it up high so that I can look at it. And if I look at it, I'm going to live I mean, I know I would probably be pretty incredulous at something like this if I were in such a situation. And lo and behold, in verse 9 there, it came about that if, any, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The Lord came through on his promise there, and he provided grace for the Israelites. Now, I imagine that there were some who felt that was probably too simple. They're probably cutting their own exes, trying to suck out their blood, looking for antidotes, trying to do something. They needed to do something to heal and save themselves. So now we're going to go back to John chapter 3. But before we do, I want to leave a disclaimer here. When you walk out of the doors this morning, what you are supposed to take away from this is not, I am so much better than the Israelites. Those guys were dumb. Um, You know, they're complaining about the Lord's provision um but frankly you know knowing my own heart i would not have the love for god if i was not born again which again is a work of the holy spirit and as the apostle paul said by the grace of god i am what i am so now let's let's zoom back out we're going to go to john chapter 3 and we can kind of picture nicodemus going over this story that he's so familiar with in his head as he's thinking about this serpent up on the standard And so that's where we're going to see the second thing that Jesus teaches Nicodemus. We had the relatable analogy. Nicodemus is thinking about it. And so now we're going to see the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality. So he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the first thing that we have to understand, and what Nicodemus would have understood knowing the Old Testament the way that he did, is that humanity is under a curse and faces judgment for sin. But our judgment is not snakes biting us and dying. That judgment and that curse is eternal death. It's separation from God forever. And so just like the case with the snake, God provided a solution to reconcile the world to himself, which is a unique solution compared to any other system of religion or philosophy in the world. Because there is no work that we can do to save ourselves from this death. There is no earthly priest that can heal us from our sin. There is no amount of X's that we cut trying to remove the sin on our own. There is no anti-venom or antidote. There is no mindlessly repetitive prayer. There is no ritual fasting. Our works cannot save us on our own. And so Jesus is is probably breaking the world for Nicodemus, the world as he knows it. This would have been an earth-shattering concept to him, that our works cannot save us, just like how the Israelites only needed to look at this serpent in the wilderness. Now, so it's important for us to look at, as we see this this phrase in John 3:14. even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And this is part of the solution here. Jesus is referring to, to himself as the son of man, he's referring to his humanity. And why is it important that he was human? After all, in John 3:16 it says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the only begotten Son of God." So why did he have to also be a son of man? Well, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. All right, and so it needed to be a human who died, who shed his blood in order to find that forgiveness of sin with God. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away that sin. So we can't continue to live with ritual sacrifices of animals. There needed to be a sacrifice of a human. And so the only work worthy of reconciling humanity back to God is that one perfect sacrifice of a worthy human being. And it can't just be any human being. They have to be worthy and righteous and holy. They have to meet God's standard. And that's where we find in John three sixteen, he is the only begotten son of God. So Jesus is referring to his humanity here that he, when he is lifted up, he is going to be lifted up as a human being to shed his blood. And so we have that image here. We have Jesus lifted up on the cross, the son of man, shedding his blood for the remission of sin. Now you might be asking, so how is the Son of Man being lifted up as a sacrifice? How does that relate to the serpent in the wilderness? If, if you're asking me, maybe Moses should have made a lamb. He sounds more like a sacrificial lamb. So Moses should have made a lamb, a bronze lamb that he puts up on a pole. And the Israelites look to that. We're going to get into that. We're going to see why it, it was a serpent... Instead of a lamb. And so if you're going to turn, if you would, please turn with me. Again, leave a bookmark in John 3. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. So this one's in the New Testament. This is after Jesus has died and and risen again. Paul is writing to the Galatians here. Now before we read this, I want you to understand that this is probably not something that Nicodemus would have taken right away because the Son of Man hadn't been lifted up, the work on the cross hadn't been done yet, so Nicodemus probably wouldn't have understood this. But, with our 21st century hindsight and the whole of Scripture available to us, we can use the serpent on the pole as a reminder to us of the work that, God, that Jesus did on the cross. It's, it's a reminder of the work. And so let's read Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All right, so now we have this image of the serpent made of bronze up on a pole. It's this image of curse and sin and judgment and suffering. It is up on the pole for the Israelites to look at. And we see Jesus having become a curse for us while he was on the cross. That is the, the work that Christ did. And that's not all of the work that Christ did on the cross. We're going to get in a little bit deeper. Let's go back a book. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. So while Jesus was becoming a curse, Paul explains what else was happening in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here, when we see God 1,400 years before Jesus was crucified, God had a plan, an image, for Moses to make this serpent on a pole. The serpent made of bronze, representing their curse and their judgment and their sin. And as they had to look at their curse and judgment and sin... In order to be healed, we have, to our benefit, Jesus lifted up on a cross, becoming a curse for us, becoming sin on our behalf, and taking the judgment of that sin for us. And why did he do that? Well, the second part of verse 21 there is going to tell us why. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So when Jesus took the judgment of our sin, just like the serpent representing judgment and curse, Jesus took the actual spiritual judgment and curse from us, so that we might be credited with His righteousness. So that's uh, that's what what Paul tells us here. And, and again, let's go back to John three here. Again, this is probably not something that Nicodemus would have recognized right away, Um, but this is something that with the whole of Scripture, and we can use a principle called Scripture interpreting Scripture, we can understand the work that Christ did on the cross while he was lifted up for us. And it, and it, it just makes it more beautiful when you consider the Old Testament example of that serpent on a pole. Uh, that God, God demonstrated 1,400 years before what he would be doing on the cross. All right, so now that we've examined the relatable analogy, we've looked at the spiritual reality of the work that Christ did on the cross. And so now we're going to move in to the third point that we see Jesus telling Nicodemus. And that's from verse 15, eternal vitality. I'm going to read verse 15 again. So that whoever believes will in him have Eternal life. Alright, so now there's a reason I didn't just use the word life there. We want to think about this as an eternal vitality because Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that the Son of Man isn't being lifted up just for a mere physical healing. He's not being lifted up for a physical healing, but this solution that God is providing is providing life with, which is not only without end, it's eternal. Not only is it without end, but when you take those Greek words together for eternal life, that Greek phrase also signifies that there is a fullness. There is an aspect of fulfillment to that eternal life. So Jesus is saying that for anyone who believes, not as Nicodemus thinks, only the physical descendants of Abraham who are good at following the law, but for anyone who believes, the work has been completed for them, to live eternally. And not just in a perpetual grind, day after day, but in a joy and abundance which exceeds anything that we can experience here on earth. Alright? So, now this leads us to our responsibility. Okay, so so now if if, uh, if you are a believer in here this morning and, and you already know all this, you're like, Stephen, you just wasted 30 minutes of my time. I already knew all of that. Um, this is your responsibility. Okay? Okay? I want you to think, I I imagine if I pulled everyone in this room, chances are pretty good, that there was someone in your life who played the role of Moses. And what do I mean by that? They lifted up Christ in a way that was visible for you. So you saw that they weren't just a good person trying to do good deeds, trying to earn their way into heaven, but they were doing those things because of Christ and Christ crucified. That Christ had already done the work for them. And that's that is the way that that is the responsibility that God has given us in sharing the gospel It is to make Christ visible, visible. And so, uh, so my challenge to you, um, believer, this morning, is that in any any interaction you have, coworkers, uh, neighbors, relatives, in any interaction you have, you are doing good things. All right, I pray you are you are doing good deeds, but the good deeds are not the only things that they see. Okay? We have a responsibility that we need to carefully examine if we are making Christ visible. Because it is, as Paul said, it is not I who does all these good deeds. It is Christ who lives in me. All right? And so we need to be ready to share with them that the work of our salvation has already been done on our behalf. And we need to remember that you cannot convert anyone's heart with, um, you know, with any sort of reasoning or anything like that. Jesus said that is a work of the Holy Spirit. He, he said it's like the wind. It's not predictable or controllable for us. But we have a responsibility to tell others when we, when we, we are asked why we live differently, that is not our own work, but Christ's work in us. So be ready. Uh, John, or Jesus, uses the word hoopsuo, the Greek word hoopsuo, and it has two meanings. It means lifted up, literally, like Jesus on the cross. The Son of Man was lifted up on the cross, but it also means a figurative sense, to lift up Christ. He must be lifted up, he must be exalted, and so the Lord exalted him, God exalted him when he resurrected him, and then he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, Okay, so he has been exalted by God, but he must also be exalted by those who claim to follow him. Okay, so that's that's my, my challenge to you. We need to make Christ's work visible to others so that they too may look and live. Paul said that he made it his purpose to preach only Christ and what? Christ crucified. All right, because he was not ashamed of the gospel. He knew that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So we're going to go ahead and start winding down our study in in John here. If you've come to the past couple Wednesday night Bible studies, you know that I love the epilogue. When we see someone in the Bible, how does the story turn out for them? How How do things go? So we're going to look at the epilogue for Nicodemus. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 19. If you're not super familiar with John 19, John 19 describes the crucifixion of Jesus. All right, it describes the crown of thorns, it describes the things that Jesus said, and it describes how the Romans proved he was dead. They pierced his side, blood and water came out, Jesus was dead. And so this is where we're going to pick up in verse 38 of John 19. John 19:38 19, says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so here we have Nicodemus, kind of the way it turned out for him. Um, And I don't know about you, the text is not super specific. It says Joseph is a disciple of of Jesus. It doesn't say the same about Nicodemus. But Nicodemus came to take care of the dead body of Jesus. And if he was a, 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 Nicodemus as a Pharisee, the Pharisees thought Jesus was a heretic. I personally don't believe that someone who thinks Jesus is a heretic would take such good care, would sacrifice so much for the body of a heretic. And so, so it's, it's reasonable for us to believe that Nicodemus came to understand. He came to understand. And whether it was in the, in the direct conversation with Jesus, whether he came to understand the direct conversation, or there are other times in the book of John where Nicodemus stands up for Jesus amongst the Pharisees, it's it's reasonable for us to believe that Nicodemus did come to believe. And so, I know on on my appointed day, when I am before the Lord, you know, I'm going to go look for Nicodemus and he's going to see that I made it there just like a little kid in a in a toddler backpack. And instead of saying, "Oh, you came the easy way. Oh, I wish I had somebody carry me." Nicodemus would say, you know, you got here on the work of Christ and I did too all I had to do was look and live all right let's pray our Heavenly Father uh, you are so good to us um, you love us so much despite our sin um, and you not only did you love us in the moment that Jesus was being crucified But throughout the Old Testament, we can see times where you were building up the story, where you were demonstrating to the world hundreds of years before Jesus that you would take away our sin, that Jesus would take the wrath and the penalty of our sin. Let us meditate on that this week, Lord. Give us opportunities to lift Christ up in our lives and in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so now as the the worship team is here, I'm going to read a benediction for you, so if you would please stand. Now if this is the first time you're hearing the gospel in this way, that the work has already been done for you, there will be men in the back who are more than willing to share with you how that work has been done, and if you have more questions, they'll be more than willing to answer those questions. So I'm going to read a benediction for you, Um, this is also in the book of Numbers, Numbers six twenty four. it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Have a great week. So the phone call. <laughs> There's actually a woman and her husband, and they're alone and they have to leave. They have to leave the state of tomorrow. And so they ask if there will any men to give who would be there.